As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Claudia Sam writes brilliantly about the stresses within the American political economy, founder of Sam Consulting, writing for Bloomberg Opinion in the New York Times and a former Federal Reserve economist and always interesting, even if you don't agree with her. Claudia, uh, David Blanche Flower published a working paper at NBER yesterday with some colleagues from Dartmouth, and it's real simple. He says, calm down. The labor economy is not hot, hot, hot. Wages are not hot, hot, hot. You say that may be right, or the worriers may be right as well, and there may be a middle ground, and what we need is time to let things solve out. Claudia Sam wants to go out the x-axis. How much time do we need to get this fixed? Yeah, that's that's the big question. So we are absolutely seeing a very disrupted economy begin to heal. I, that is one important interpretation of the jobs report that we saw last week. We have a lot of hiring. We do have strong wage growth. How else are you going to solve a labor shortage and bring workers back without paying them more? That is absolutely a piece of what we're seeing now. We see services becoming more prevalent in consumer spending. So a lot of the disruptions we saw appear to be unwinding. They got to unwind faster than the Fed keeps going with the rates. So that's that's the big question if we have well, enough time. The politicians, Claudia, have a um, timeline uh, which is based on election days. You don't and we don't either. Is this an inflation story to be solved in quarters or years? To be fully solved, it's a solution over years. I think we could and, and are on track to be seeing some relief in the coming quarters. Uh, if we don't see it, then we're, we're going to a very weak recessionary place next year. Uh, so, and, and that'll do a, a good number on inflation if we get there. But I think a path is really a healing that is um, slow but steady, pointed in the right direction, gets us back to something like 2%. 
in two or three years. This is not a quick turn in terms of, you know, turning back the lights on, getting us back to a normal that that just takes takes time. Well, but Claudia, the new normal is something people have been talking about, especially with the participation rate remaining so low. And this is the reason why the likes of Danny Blanchflower and others say there's more slack in this labor market than it may seem. Do you understand why there are so many people still not going back to work? Is it long COVID? Is it retirements? Is it all of the above? There's some very good research, though it is preliminary, that we that the long COVID, just that piece of it, could explain two-tenths, three-tenths off the labor force participation rate. That's pretty close to a fifth of that gap that we've seen open up. So that's a piece of it. We know people still have care issues, you know, just the ability to be working. We've seen a lot of people unable to work as many hours as they want to because, you know, they get sick, they have to come home. There's a lot. And then older workers that took this as an opportunity to retire. Some of them could have retired a lot sooner. So, Claudia, the reason why I bring this up is because all of these issues are sticky issues, right? They're not going to bring people back in. You're not going to necessarily see that participation rate go up. So when you talk about time, what is your fear that if the Fed does back off or doesn't raise rates as quickly to allow some time, that it gets it wrong yet again when its ideological framework has been proven wrong or at least delayed again and again? I think it's a matter of interpretation. The Fed's baseline interpretation of what's happening in the labor market is running really hot. There are signs that demand is cooling all over the place, the business investment, the consumer spending. But when they look at that labor market, they're seeing hot. Not everyone, right? Governor Waller has expressed some views about the uh, vacancy rate coming down without unemployment rising. That is clearly a correction of some structural issues. So the Fed is open-minded, as the Fed always is. Their baseline has been looking at the labor market. It's too hot. It's unhealthy. And that's what they're trying to cool down. That could be too much. Well, Claudia, to that point, looking at the NFIB small business optimism survey that came out, 49% of all owners reported job openings that they could not fill in the current period. So is what we're talking about realistically just an absence of hiring, but not necessarily businesses that are going to be outright firing people, especially as they've had difficulty bringing people back after layoffs during the pandemic? Right. A lot of the jobs that are missing are part-time jobs. I mean, so we've seen an increase in the multiple job holders. We've seen people moving back from self-employment into uh, being employees. That was a very unusual pattern in the crisis. The the optimistic scenario is that the first place, if, if businesses see demand slowing down, which it clearly is, and it's been at an unsustainably high pace, when they see it slow down, that they're going to go first to pulling job openings and not firing, because they've learned, hopefully at this point, that if you fire a bunch of your workers, it can be hard to bring them back. We got to go because of breaking news. Claudia Sam, mm-hmm. thank you so much, uh, particularly on inflation tomorrow and some of the labor linkages uh, that we see there as well. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let us give a little history here on one of the great, great surprises of the last 20 years. They were those guys over in New Jersey, and in our childhood, they owned a piece of the rock, and they would show you Gibraltar, and they were Prudential, and that's the way it was. Prudential became PGM, and with it, they became truly one of our best, best opinionated bond houses. These are buy-side people managing bond money, full faith and credit, investment-grade credit, which Lisa's expert in, and also, of course, distressed debt. But more than anything, they have done it with an opinionated Elan that is absolutely second to none. Lisa, that includes the gentleman greeting us this morning. Yeah, Greg Peters, uh, co-chief investment officer at PGM Fixed Income, who is joining us at a time when the one conviction in markets had been longer-term bonds and continues to be longer-term bonds. And you've had such a fascinating view on this, oscillating between conviction and not so much. Where do you stand on an area that has been a haven amid near-term concerns about inflation? Yes, I think the bond market has just reflected the new reality after Russia invaded Ukraine uh, post-lockdown. So we have seen and we're still experiencing this inflation surge uh, um, and growth surge. Uh, And the thing that I'm focused on and we're focused on at PGEM is, as like everyone else, the rollover in inflation. But I think that kind of misses the bigger question on the table is, so what's next? And, you know, we were talking earlier and I think the markets are entirely too comfortable with this notion where it's just going to be a straight line down, smooth and easy, right to the uh, Fed 2% uh, uh, mandated zone. So uh, I still think there's lots of room for volatility, lots of room uh, for rates to move both uh, higher and lower uh, and uh, credit spreads to be much more volatile and wider on balance. That's exactly where I wanted to go. This conviction that people have that the Fed will get to their 2% target that you can see in that conviction for longer term bonds. You can see this also in break even rates that have actually come down as the Fed jawbones. Do you expect that to change? That as we head into the end of the year and as people start to see a cooling off in some of the inflation data, you get less of an inversion in the 210 spread and that ends up being bad for markets because that means the long end is increasing, yields going higher as people start to question the Fed's ability to get things under control? Yeah, so it's a good question. I uh, think that there's a high probability that the high in rates have already been put into this market. Uh, uh, a lot can change, so my conviction level uh, isn't as high as it normally is, just given kind of the uncertainty and the volatility and the unprecedented nature of it all. Uh, but I do worry about that. Uh, but but actually, Lisa, I kind of worry about the flip side of that, where once rates do come down, that markets get, uh, or not rates, inflation rates can come down, the markets get too excited over that. Uh, and they're declaring victory in the middle of the battle. And I think that's where the whipsaw uh, moment could really come in 
uh, and hurt investors in a meaningful way. Well, Greg, of course, it's not just about getting inflation down. It's what it takes to get inflation down. And there is this narrative out there that if the data is looking okay, looking resilient, that means that the Fed can hike aggressively in order to tame inflation and land softly while doing so. But is it actually, if the data is stronger, the Fed has to be even more aggressive in order to actually get a handle on demand and bring prices down, and therefore a hard landing is inevitable? Yeah, that's kind of been my narrative all along. I, I've, I've always felt that this underlying strength of the economy, you know, nominal GDP is really quite robust, which is why you're seeing actually earnings rise to the upside or at least not be as, as poor as many uh, thought or asserted. Uh, so, yeah, to me, the stronger the economy, and this is a very strong economy in lots of different respects, requires the Fed to do more, which in turn means the risk of a hard landing uh, uh, is actually higher, not lower. So I know it's a perverse way to think about it, but uh, that's kind of the uh, the viewpoint uh, that I have. So if they have to do more, which is get the terminal rate to a higher level, what is your expectation about how long realistically they're going to be able to stay there before cutting? Because this market's still betting that cuts are going to come next year. Yeah, so the cuts in the marketplace uh, next year seem a little heroic to me. Uh, so um, that uh, that's where I uh, really disagree with the market. So, uh, you, you know, once again, it's about the path. And I, I think the market's extrapolating the straight line lower, 2%. And my strong suspicion is that you're not uh, going to move in a straight line. And so those cuts that are being priced in the market uh, next year are unlikely to be fulfilled in my mind. So, Greg, given the lack of conviction uh, about a specific trade that will be consistently a winning trade, and given your uh, expectation uh, that there is going to be more spread widening, where's the haven trade? Where's the ballast when you start to look at investments? Yeah, so I think it's about relative value, kind of risk-neutral type of uh, uh, themes. And so one of the themes is actually Europe over the U.S. So, you know, we look at investment-grade corporates, we see a lot more value, even with kind of to move tighter here uh, in Europe than, than the U.S. We see a lot of value in high-quality structured products. Uh, these are assets that should do really well in an environment that, you know, with heightened type of recession risk uh, and, and basically playing the front end of these credit curves. So if you believe that these investments that you have will be, quote-unquote, money good, will not default, then mining that front end, uh, is an area to uh, get roll and carry, as we like to say, in fixing companies. Finally, Greg, obviously CPI tomorrow, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. The print is hot. What happens? The print is cold. What happens? Well, so I think it's, uh, you know, the market's setting up for a lower print, at least kind of in, uh, in you know, the whispers. Um, so um, if it is hot, I think that is a decided risk off uh, a type of environment. Uh, and if it's at or below, I think we continue to grind here through the course of the summer. Just one caveat I'd like to make, though, is, you know, August is a period of time where there's not a lot of informational content coming through the marketplace. Liquidity is much more thin. A, a lot of investors are, you know, taking their mandatory two-weekers. And so let's not read too much into what happens here over the next couple of weeks. I think September will get a much better read on really the market, true market direction. Greg Peters, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning. Uh, Greg Peters with PGM. It is the morning after a raid by the Federal Bureau of Investigation under search warrant 
So not a raid, but a search of a former president's private residence. It is unprecedented. Greg Vallier on short notice joins us this morning. We're honored that the gentleman from AGF could join us. Greg, you and I remember in our ute, Watergate. This isn't Watergate, isn't it? No, it's not. There are a lot of differences. And one is that, of course, Nixon resisted all of this. And I would argue, Tom, that last night was a trifecta for Trump, a three victories in, in one in one evening. Number one, he's on the front page of every newspaper in America. He loves that. Number two, he gets to play martyr. He's brilliant at playing martyr. And number three, the Republicans are looking pretty unified. And if you look at the quotes from everyone from Kevin McCarthy to obscure House members, they're all outraged that this happened. So for Trump... I think it's a victory. If Democrats, independents, and Republicans assume that the attorney general will in some point voice or act or begin a judicial process, does that get in the way of our electoral process this November or a November 30 months from now? It may to the extent that it might affect voting, but I don't think legally it will because Donald Trump specializes in in cases that drag on for seven, eight years. So he'll appeal and appeal and appeal. And, and I think he still could run. The key has always is moderate voters. Will moderates decide they've had enough like many Republican moderates have decided? That could make a difference. But right now, Uh, I think that this is a, again, it's a plus for Trump. How much, Greg, does this change the dynamic heading into the midterm elections? Because we did see some of the polls showing that Democrats have been gaining ground on the heels of lower gas prices and some of these legislative wins. Yeah, that's really intriguing. I mean, you've got food and gas prices coming down. You've got Biden having a pretty darn good summer. So it's possible that maybe the Democrats' losses will only be five or 10 seats in the House. Maybe the Democrats will keep the Senate. But I can't see the House staying Democratic. I I think the House will flip. But, Greg, what does this say in terms of President Biden's second two years of his first term, this idea that he will not be able to get that much more legislation through? How do you sort of uh, advise some of your clients in terms of what they can expect in response to a downturn, what they can expect in terms of debt reduction and some of these other issues that have been uh, increasing talking points? It's going to be a a pretty meek agenda in the last two years. There's there's not, not much left that they can get done. So for my clients in the financial world, that's a good story. Uh, gridlock is a good story. Uh, they don't have much to worry about. I don't see any new taxes coming for a long, long time. I don't see any big new spending coming for a long time. The, the big crisis, I would argue, is geopolitical. Uh, there's a lot to worry about there. Yeah. Well, on that point, Greg, this is a U.S. United States of America, where we're talking about the home of a former president being searched for documentation he may or may not have taken from the White House at the same time that we're expecting in a couple weeks hearings to resume on insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. That, to me, looks like a democracy very much in some form of crisis. How does that play when we're trying to defend democracy in Taiwan? Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very good point. And I think Trump, of course, breaks all of the rules. That's always been the the case with him. And I think it will will happen uh, uh, again. Uh, If if I would just say that Trump is still alive politically, and I would have guessed a few months ago that he'd be close to finished. He's not finished. You can't underestimate this guy. 
And what about the other Republican potential candidates for 2024? Is there realistically anyone who could beat him if he runs again at this point? Uh, maybe DeSantis. You can't rule him out. I think after Liz Cheney loses next uh, Tuesday, she'll probably go to New Hampshire and, and see how things look for her as a candidate. There could be a dozen candidates, but if Trump runs, he'll clear the field. Greg Vallier, better leave it there. Thank you on short notice for joining us here on this most historic day for a shocked America. Again, a search warrant and a search by the Federal Bureau of Investigation of a former president's residence. This is in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, in hugely anticipated, Neil Dada joins us. He's head of U.S. economic research at Renaissance Macro Research. But what's important there is he writes with a stiletto knife in his hand, slicing and dicing the zeitgeist that is out there. Neil Dada joins us on our American economy. I love the way you go after consensus. What's consensus get most wrong right now? Well, I think the consensus right now is pivoting very, it uh, feels like very quickly to... Uh, Peak inflation, slower inflation, um, you know, maybe the Fed backing off. Um, I think that's probably a mistake. You think that that's a mistake, Neil, because you think that the Fed is going to keep going and that inflation hasn't yet peaked? Well, I don't think core inflation has peaked, Lisa. There she is, Tom, my arch nemesis, now my best friend. <laughs> we're on the we're same side of the, that, we're on the, same yeah. side of the fence. Um, yeah, look, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think things changed at the June FOMC meeting. The Fed basically told us that it was willing to, um, you know, push the economy into recession to achieve its goals. And, you know, it, we went from it's going to be challenging to uh, achieve a soft landing to now it's going to be very challenging to achieve a soft landing. I mean, um, you know, the path is narrowing. I mean, they sort of use the, the, these kinds of, uh, you know, words to, to basically demonstrate how difficult the task is going to be. But, uh, you know, look, I mean, the last employment re report was a knockout. And, you know, essentially, I mean, we have uh, inflation significantly above target. You heard Mike McKee there talking about unit labor costs. I mean, unit labor costs are up a lot. You know, interestingly enough, during the pandemic, prices have actually been trailing unit labor costs, which in my view means that there's more upside to prices going forward. Um, and despite the fact that price inflation is so elevated, financial conditions, what have they been doing over the last couple of weeks? Well, they've been easing. So to me, that suggests that the Fed has a lot more room to go. Um, I think the die is cast now for a 75 basis point move uh, at the September FOMC meeting, and they need to leave it on the table. 
for the remaining two meetings this year. What does that mean for equities? I know that you've been a big bull in terms of the corporate resilience and their ability to adapt and adjust, to use Tom's phrase. Why is this time different, this moment different when it comes to that? Well, I mean, in, I mean, equity markets, um, when you think about it uh, fundamentally, it's really driven by three factors, right, Lisa? It's interest rates, actual and expected earnings, and uh, the risk premium, right? So the move in July, the 9% burst in the S&P 500 last month, that was entirely driven by lower interest rates. So if I think the Fed's going to keep hiking, I think interest rates will go up, and you know, the economy is not out of the woods. I mean, we're going to see residential investment contract in the third quarter. We're going to see capital spending come down because growth expectations have softened. Um, inventories will likely be um, more negative, I mean, particularly for, you know, sort of durable goods industries. So you'll see an inventory liquidation of some kind, I'm assuming. That's all negative for GDP growth, which is negative for, for growth and earnings. And so... Yeah. Um, and so if, if interest rates are going up and earnings estimates are coming down, uh, it's hard to be optimistic about the equity market. And of course, the equity market is one way the Fed has to slow the economy down. Yeah. On the subject of earnings, Neil, obviously the ability to retain profit margin in an inflationary environment like this one is predicated on the ability to pass on higher input costs to the consumer and consumers to tolerate those higher prices. Are we overestimating the resilience of the U.S. consumer? Consumers have an enormous ability to take on higher prices, as evidenced by the fact that, you know, look at how much excess savings they have. They've, I mean, the entire improvement in consumer spending in the first half of the year was driven by lower savings rates. But that can't last forever, right? Bingo. So where does that leave us, Neil? <laughs> I mean, to me, it just leaves me more cautious on the economic outlook. I mean, um, to, and uh, yeah, I'd be cautious on stocks. I mean, I get that the equity markets have kind of ripped here. Um, you know, maybe a lot mm -hmm. of the people that were, uh, you know, thinking the way I do about things mm -hmm. already sold back in June. But, uh, you know, this right. isn't over yet. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that's my view. Um, but I definitely, and I think one of, that is, one of those reasons is because the Fed's not done yet. And you think about mm -hmm. the rest of the world, the dollar is likely to, I mean, I don't think the dollar uh, strength is over yet. I mean, you have, uh, you know, U.S. economy holding up better than many of its major trading partners. Well, you have the Fed still hiking. That's obviously very dollar bullish. So the holding up better, if we get a data inflation, if we get whatever the real economy will give us, and it doesn't sound like with productivity it's going to be all that much, that's still a sustained nominal GDP. So let's go to the data optimism. Can we say that Dutta, that Dutta and Bramo agree to agree? I think we can say that, folks. This is a rare, rare, rare occurrence. <laughs> Breaking news. But exactly. away from that, when you say to Bramo here in months, you're wrong, it's going to be because Dutta's optimistic. Can corporations adapt to this unique set of cards right now? Well, they're going to adapt, but Tom, that's going to require some, uh, some pain for the economy, right? I mean, if you think about the first half of the year, you know, to me, for business economics, the most interesting thing is this reconciliation between the fact that hours worked have been rising very robustly, and right. output has not. So <clears throat> we've seen this big drop in productivity. So the question is, how do companies reestablish stronger productivity? That's going to require some combination of slower hiring, fewer hours worked, raising prices. For 50 years, it's been total factor productivity to the rescue. Is it going to come to the rescue again? Technology is an overlay? I mean, it takes time. I mean, I don't see an investment boom out there right now.
Okay. So, so, so where is the productivity going to come from? I just want to get on us on a negative note. So, Bramo and Dutta agree to. Agree. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, honestly, well, Lisa. you know, this is this is the <clears throat> issue: is that a lot of people are looking at the financial condi conditions index. And Neil, you mentioned this, and it's actually the least. Uh, th that it's the least tight, it's the weakest that it's been, it's the loosest that it's been going back to April. And it makes no sense. And this is there the bear go. case. No, and, and but Neil, you alluded <clears throat> to this, and this is where I think we agree, is the Fed's going to look at this and say, uh-uh-uh, I don't think so. And they're going to push back. When do we get that pushback? Well, it could come as soon as Jackson Hole. Uh, it could come uh, at the September FOMC. Um, you've started to see it, particularly among a lot of the regional manufacturers, uh, <laughs> regional uh, Fed presidents, right? I mean, they've been saying we're not done yet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, look, I mean, the other thing, of course, is that they, they'll often, they'll try to be hawkish, but they sound dovish in the process. For example, um, you know, they'll say something like, well, it's the market, right. too, it's too soon to be pricing in cuts. Well, you shouldn't be pricing them in at all. So why are you even giving the market that, that sort of language? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think what the Fed basically needs to say is that we have a singular focus on bringing inflation down. Um, and uh, <clears throat> right. and we're willing to do what it takes in order to do that. And, you know, right. there are no cuts coming. I'm depressed. Neil, thank you so much. Neil Dutt of Renaissance Macro. This is a joy. He's been so busy yep. that we've just said to Admiral Stravitas, we'll take you when we can get you. And yep. we are thrilled to bring you worldwide now a gentleman of the United States Navy, and of course this on Taiwan and China. And the backdrop of this is my book of the summer. I think it was a year ago, maybe two years ago. 2034, a novel of the next world war, Elliot Ackerman and one James Trevitas. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. I, I wanna talk about the beginning in the South China Sea of your book, the Renri incident, which is fiction and is planted out in 2034. Are we getting to 2034 faster than you thought we would? Kind of feels that way, Tom. And of course, the book 2034 set in that year starts with a, a miscommunication, a miscalculation between uh, Navy destroyers and a Chinese fishing vessel. And, and, and it makes this point that I worry about. These are young people. These are young pilots. These yeah. are relatively young ship captains. They're not deeply experienced. It's not Tony Blinken flying that Hornet around. Um, <laughs> there is going to be that potential for miscalculation. So, yes, I worry we are closer to that kind of miscalculation. In 2006, on the Ronald Reagan, a pilot landed off of Brisbane and on the aircraft carrier, struck a ramp, whatever, a lot of damage, the pilot was okay, the aircraft was lost. Things happen at sea. You're the pro. What are the things that can happen to the Ronald Reagan off of Taiwan that concern you? Uh, well, certainly the Ronald Reagan could be targeted by Chinese long-range aircraft. They could be targeted so by So it could be targeted missiles. by an like an Exocet missile like in the Falkland Wars. Uh, Exocet, kind of shorter range, but uh, the equivalent of today's version of the Exocet, absolutely. And the other thing you're worrying about out there are Chinese submarines. Mm -hmm. They're not as good as our submarines, but they're quite capable. So, yeah, there's a real threat to the Reagan and the ships that are uh, supporting her. Tom, as soon as we 
are done here, I'm going to go download the Admiral's next book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. That's going to be my beach read this weekend. The Rickover chapter is outstanding. Yes, I, I'm, outstanding. I'm looking forward to that. So, Admiral, as we step back here with a little bit of perspective here over the last couple of weeks, starting with Speaker Pelosi's trip to uh, that region of the world, what are your views? What are your takeaways? Should she have gone? Was it a good move there? And the response by the Chinese? Uh, she, first and foremost, has every right to go there. And we can't put ourselves, the United States, in the position of allowing China to have a veto authority over anyone trying to go to Taiwan. I've been to Taiwan, visited with Madam Tsai, the president. I'm not the Speaker of the House, which brings us to, yeah, it raised tensions considerably, and they remain at a very elevated level, uh, particularly because of this de facto blockade that China has put up around the island. But having said all that... I think tensions are going to go down over the next couple of weeks. Look, President Xi has no interest in a, a big firefight out there, an incident, a sinking, right. a ship. It's not where this is headed. So look for tensions to come down in the weeks ahead. I believe my history is Nimitz and Sprague were in Hawaii, and MacArthur was down in Australia, and there was a raging battle of how to approach Japan. This is a few years back, sir. <laughs> And the answer is MacArthur won, and up through the Philippines we went. Are we deployed now in the Western Pacific, and do we have to revisit? This is before. Stravitas is a young whippersnapper. This is after (laughs) the 60s. Do we need to revisit a base for our U.S. Navy in the Western Pacific? I would argue we need to protect the bases we have, and that includes Guam. It includes uh, superb bases in Japan, notably southern Japan, bases in South Korea. We've expanded a bit and added bases in northern Australia. It would be great to get back into the Philippines. Well, Secretary Blinken met with Marcos Jr. two or three days ago. Is that our first request? I think it's on the agenda, and it ought to be. I sailed many times back uh, in the, uh, not the 60s, Tom, thank you. I was in elementary (laughs) school in the 60s. But after I graduated from Annapolis in the late 1970s and 80s, I went many times to uh, Subic Bay, to Clark Air Force Base. These were gorgeous, important strategic bases. It would be terrific to get access back there. Well, Admiral, I will only suggest that you chose to serve the nation at the absolute bottom of morale for our military uh, with your schooling at the Naval Academy. James Trevitas, thank you so much. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the Best in Economics, Finance, Investment, and International Relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.